Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, the Trans-Europe Express of podcasts, where every week we check the rickety track that the locomotive called Brexit is steaming down and pray the destination changes before it's too late. I'm Dorian Linsky and later this show we're going to be looking at the legislation formerly known as the Great Repeal Bill. What's it all about and how did we end up with powers last used under Henry VIII being disinterred for use in the 21st century? And as the Brexit outlook darkens, what do you do when the democratic decision of the people, however shaky it might be, runs up against harsh reality? Can you reverse a mass decision without falling victim to all those familiar Brexiteer complaints about ignoring the will of the people? Before we meet our regulars and get started, can I make a special request of you, the loyal listener? If you enjoy the podcast, then please do subscribe via Apple Podcasts on your iPhone or the iTunes Music Store. One tap or click will do it, and you'll never have to remember to download the show again. It really helps us get the podcast in front of more people. And if you could leave a review, preferably with so many stars that it looks like the EU flag, then that would be even better. We'd appreciate it. Okay, let's say hello to our two regular co-hosts. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk and he eats five portions of Brexit news a day. <laughs> hello, Ian. How are you? Very well indeed. Thank you. Uh, you're a big Game of Thrones fan. Excited about the series coming back? Uh, yeah. No, I am. Yeah, it was really, it was really, really good fun. I can tell that... I know exactly what... You're basically going to do, like, what are the comparisons between Game of Thrones and <laughs> Brexit right now, are you? Yeah. Because <laughs> I think, like, the internet. <laughs> It's the Cersei thing, is I mean, Theresa May is obviously Cersei, like, not when she's... There's a period where Cersei's sort of in charge behind her son, sort of a period leading up to where we are now. And she just, you know, she ruins every alliance and she strengthens every enemy and all of her short-term aims come before any of her long-term strategic objectives. And by virtue of that, it may or may not remind me of a certain prime minister. And, of course, in the show, spoilers ahead... She does actually succeed in removing the High Sparrow, whereas in this case, the High Sparrow actually uh, forced a hung parliament. <laughs> you did. You prepared that, didn't you? <laughs> well, everybody, remember when Corbyn was the, was the High Sparrow? Oh, yes. No, of course. Yeah. Plus, oh, there's also a thing that she does actually literally blow everything up. So, you know, the comparisons <laughs> last for a rather long time. We also have Peter Collins, formerly business editor of The Economist. He's now a lone wolf, a ronin of Brexitology. Hello, Peter. How's the Brexit game treating you this week? Well, just to clarify, you do mean a Ronin, as in an independent yes. Japanese samurai, and not a Ronan Keating, former singer with boys <laughs> <laughs> Because the first one I'd be happy with, the second one, not so much. Yeah, no, I just you wielding your samurai sword of hard stats. Well, singing about my broken heart or something. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed, yes. And we're delighted to welcome this week's guest, Gronia Maguire. She's a stand-up comedian, writer and actor who's appeared on Question Time in Daily Politics. She's written for the News Quiz and Channel 4's Alternative Election Night and wowed the Edinburgh Festival. She hosts the monthly podcast, What Has the News Ever Done For Me? 
Hello, Gronio. What has the news ever done for you? Well, I just want to take umbrage. I would be flattered to be compared to Ronan Keating. Because <laughs> 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 he said life is like a roller coaster. And if we paid more attention to that, maybe Brexit wouldn't have happened. That's a good point. So. <laughs> <laughs> People could have hesitated in the booth there. Going, well, hang on, roller coasters go up and down. Exactly, like exchange rates. It's, uh, it's an important <laughs> yeah. lesson nobody listened to. We'll be talking to Gronio more later. But first, here's Peter with the news. Yes, well, indeed. Uh, so first of all, let's start with um, some party politics on the Conservative side. Theresa May assembled her squabbling cabinet on Tuesday and told them to at least put up a facade of unity while they sharpen their knives and plot how to get rid of her. She said, we'll have no more of these vicious briefings against Philip Hammond. And yes, I am looking at you, Johnson and Davis. <laughs> Our old friend Dominic Cummings, the campaign chief of the Leave campaign, uh, who's recently seemed to be having a few second thoughts, tweeted that David Davis, the Brexit secretary, is thick as mints, lazy as a toad and vain as Narcissus. He's just discovered similes, hasn't he? Indeed, yes. <laughs> he's very excited about <laughs> GCSE, this. yes. Uh, also said that he's a perfect stooge for a supposed cunning plan, supposedly organised by Sir Jeremy Haywood, the head of the civil service, to gently steer Britain into the membership of the European economic area and betray all the Brexiteers. Meanwhile, on the Labour side, the former Prime Minister Tony Blair lurched back onto the British political scene once again, a bit like a zombie in one of those horror films that's been shot, stabbed, strangled, drowned and chopped to pieces but still keeps coming at you with those mad eyes. <laughs> He's back. Anyway, Blair said it was absolutely necessary that Brexit does not happen because of the economic and political damage it's doing. And he said public opinion was changing on the issue. Indeed, a poll found that a huge majority of Labour members, over 80%, opposed Jeremy Corbyn's call for Britain to leave the EU single market. So how about if we start with uh, the Conservative side? What does all this cabinet infighting do to our negotiating abilities in the, in the, mm. in the Brexit talks? So I, I, I mean, in terms of the, our negotiating abilities in the Brexit talks, it just makes us even weaker than we were before. She's got no support around the cabinet table. She's got no support in Parliament. So with someone going in there into negotiations, it's, it's perfectly obvious that she can't really necessarily deliver the things that she says she can deliver, let alone, you know, around her own cabinet table. And I suspect that it does remain some good to have that really visible chaos going on at the head of government over this period. However, I don't think it will last. I, my suspicion is, and it's just a suspicion, it's all ruined. I sort of feel like they're going to let her take the damage for all the capitulation she does on the divorce stage of the negotiation. You know, the budget and the citizens and all of this stuff. Well, she is just going to have to give in no matter what they say. And then when it comes to the actual deal, to, the, to looking ahead to a free trade agreement, to the more positive aspects, I suspect that's when they're going to stick the knife in. Because that's the bit where someone else might feel that they have a personal incentive. They would like to be that person up there making those decisions. The briefing against Philip Hammond was uh, was quite sort of comical because you can see that there's presumably you're meant to be sort of a quite cunning in your briefing. Yes. So therefore you don't do it like four times over a weekend, do you? Because people might begin to sense that something's up. They've got such a little class in the way that they do this. I mean, you know, the, the stuff around Hammond you can see coming like a mile off. And then, you know, watching David Davis and Boris Johnson take pot shots at each other at summer parties, you know, over, over their sister, you just think like, come on, I mean, we're entitled to a better degree of political skullduggery than what we're getting here. This is just such low-grade internecine attacks. It's, it's very, very tedious indeed. But then, look, these are very, very low-grade people on both leadership sides. It's the same on Labour, you know. These are, these are not the best of the best by any extent. What about this idea of a sort of stitch-up among the Whitehall establishment led by the Daily Mail's favourite villain, Sir Jeremy Haywood, the head of the civil service, yes. uh, to, to just basically 
make it all happen so that we stick in the EU? I think we'd rather have that than a hard Brexit. But do you think it's possible that that sort of stitch up could even be contemplated? It's not a conspiracy, is it? It's just a bunch of civil servants saying to ministers, uh, we don't have enough capacity here and we don't have enough time. So we urgently need to create a solution to this problem. And that solution is obviously going to be you know, one of two things, either an EEA solution in the single market, or it's going to be um, a transitional deal that lasts from the end of Article 50 all the way up to the signing of the new treaty, not just two years, as some people are saying, but what will likely be seven years, and what, frankly, is very likely would just fossilise into a new status quo. But that's obviously, I mean, it's not a conspiracy, it's just civil servants being sensible <laughs> which one thing is, you know we, we may rather enjoy having a bit more of I just think all this backbiting and briefing against each other and trying to destroy their leader as a Labour person I find that really offensive because they are very obviously our policies <laughs> <so>. <laughs> and turning to, to Labour back to Tony Blair or as I like to call him Tony Blair um, it, does anything he says say matters these days I mean you know there are Blairites still around aren't there in, in, in the Labour backbenches can he sort of swing things do you think I think if he really really was worried about Brexit he would go out and publicly support Brexit <laughs> And then everybody would hate Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to... It's such a strange thing, hasn't it? It's just, it's just one of those names that you say it and the room splits, basically. And you see, you see it on, on Twitter, like the day he says something, you have all of the Tories and all of the Corbynites united as one, once more, you know, in, in saying that, you know, he's the most dreadful person, you should all let him go. I don't like Blair very much. I mean, I find him horribly authoritarian and way too right-wing for me, and Iraq was the most catastrophic disaster and was visibly going to be a catastrophic disaster at the time. I mean, that wasn't, you know, something that was revealed later on. It was just so, so inept and, and, and dim-witted and, and, and mean-spirited of him. Reminds However, me of something. Yes, indeed, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, it, that was some time ago, and now I, I sort of I feel like in the Brexit game, there's no enemies on your side in the Brexit game. If someone is now on side and wants to stop this catastrophe from happening, then you say, well, I'm really glad that you're on side. And he does have an ability to communicate emotionally and intellectually in a way that I don't know of any other politician in this country well, who can do it. Well, if you kind of if you've got any interest in in political history, um, it's kind of a given that leaders do good things and bad things. You know, I mean, there was a you know, Robert Caro's epic series of biographies of Lyndon Johnson. I mean, it's kind of a given with Lyndon Johnson that he achieved some fantastic progressive things and also basically accelerated the war in Vietnam. Those two things can both be true, whereas it seems with Blair that whatever he says, even when, broadly speaking, I mean, the, the, the dig at Corbyn, I think, was, was, was a little unf unfortunate and bound to kind of raise hackles. Mm. But everything he was saying about Brexit, I thought this is, this is no less true because of the Iraq war. But it seems that with Blair, there is only an absolutist position that, that, that he cannot be listened to or trusted on anything else for the rest of his life. But I think he um, I think he's got only got himself to blame because he whatever legacy he had, there's this idea every six months he's returning to frontline politics. Ever since he left, he's been returning to frontline politics and he's got an opinion on everything and you think of like John Major or Gordon Brown they keep out of it so when they do intervene people listen to them but because Tony Blair has never shut up then <laughs> nobody oh brilliant you've got thought he's like somebody who's fired from an office and keeps coming back so oh, hi guys I was just I was just in the area <laughs> <laughs> just, just wanted to see how things were going I don't think Christmas party this year Let's, should we move on to our second news topic of the week, which is that Britain may be sleepwalking into a food crisis as a result of Brexit, according to a report from a group of academics from Sussex City and Cardiff University. 
So the report points out that for all the criticism that the EU's common agricultural policy gets with its subsidies and its surpluses, it has meant that we've been able to get used to food prices being fairly stable and the supply of food being highly stable, highly dependable. But Britain's domestic food production has been declining and farmers have come to depend, first of all, on immigrant labour from the eastern members of the EU and also on the EU subsidies, which provide now about half of British farm incomes. Uh, Among the consequences of Brexit, the report says, could be a return to the sort of volatility in food prices that we used to have before we joined the EU and a further slump in farm output in Britain and therefore an even greater dependence on imports. And of course, there's also the food safety angle, things like chlorinated chicken and so on, which are perfectly acceptable in America. We might have to be importing that if that's the trade deal that we do, likewise from China. So my first question for everybody is, It seems to make sense to me, all of this, but won't it instantly be dismissed as part of project fear? The Brexiteers will say, well, the inflation figures are actually not bad this week. You know, uh, we're not seeing this huge spike in food prices, at least this month. When we do this wonderful deal with everybody in the world, etc., etc., agriculture will be free. I hate the phrase project fear because it's sort of any prediction that something bad might happen is just dismissed with a stupid, stupid phrase until it becomes project like a bad thing actually happening. <laughs> I mean, you could apply Project Fear to everything. If your doctor says, "Oh, you, should, you can should really try and give up smoking," you go Project Fear. <laughs> like it doesn't mean that there isn't there aren't actually serious things that we that we should be thinking about. And it just seems that so many of these these quite specific things that that come up and fairly logical things, like the the, the sort of chain of events that you've described, makes a lot of sense, are just instantly thrown into this this sort of basket of things that cannot be discussed because they're too negative. And grown-ups would try and prepare for these things, perhaps to take measures, to kind of warn people, not just kind of say, oh, it's not going to happen until it finally does. Indeed. Uh, What puzzles me is, as, as I understand it, a majority of British farmers voted for Brexit, and yet they get half of their income from EU subsidies. It's the biggest thing keeping them afloat. How did this happen? Ian, tell us. I have no idea. They're they're more screwed, I think, than pretty much anyone. It's really hard with a hard Brexit to see how... British agriculture survives. I mean, I think you might be all right with poultry. Poultry could probably make its way without subsidies. I mean, I think the rest of it is gone, basically. Um, so p- part of that is the loss of subsidies that you get from the EU. Part of that is you get this sort of double whammy because at the beginning you're going to get these tariffs. and That's a lot of what was being talked about in this report. You suddenly you start to see tariffs coming in. Tariffs on agricultural goods are really very, very high. And the margins on food sort of sales are very, very low. I mean, supermarkets squeeze producers as hard as they can. Often sell at below cost price or at cost price. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're absolutely ruinous for, for, for food production, uh, domestic food production. So all of, the, all of this comes together. Then you see the cuts to immigration. That's very, very difficult for this, you know, your classic fruit pickers and your seasonal labor. All of that makes it really rather hard. But then on the other side of this, as you were sort of alluding to, further down the line, you then get cheap food imports. Because any time that there's going to be a trade deal between Britain and, say, a country like the U.S., but it will go for a few others as well. The real quid pro quo is going to be Britain saying, we want penetration for our financial services. And in exchange, you can send your agricultural goods over to us and we're going to lower our standards on them. and We won't impose any tariffs. So that, that mix of stuff at different stages, it has different effects. At the beginning, I think it will raise food prices. I think if we were to start doing FTAs with other countries, it would actually probably start lowering food prices, but not necessarily in a way that would help. And also... This is part of what's helpful about Brexit is that it makes people think about their society. And you start to think about what are the tensions between 
consumers and producers. And in this case, you've got a clear one where we lower costs for consumers. One of the things that happens is that domestic producers get it in the neck and a lot of them will go out of business. And as a country, if this thing is really going to happen, we start having to have conversations about where are our priorities lie in different sectors on that question. Indeed. Uh, and Bronya, it's not just a problem for British farmers, it's a problem for Irish farmers as well, because as I understand, you've, got, you've now got this open border between North and South, which he- heaven knows what's going to happen after Brexit to that border. And I was reading somewhere the argument the other day that um, on the island of Ireland as a whole, there are lots of sort of food processing and food handling facilities where there is one of each type for the whole of Ireland. And if you had a hard border, you couldn't justify having one for part of part of you know just for the republic, let's say. So presumably that's going to that's going to hit Irish farmers too, isn't it? I think. What will probably happen is the EU will sort of look after Ireland as a way of sort of punishing Britain to an extent. (laughs) I have a feeling we'll be looked after because we're kind of the good children. We paid back our debt. We weren't like Greece and caused all the tantrums. But I think genuinely, if food prices does go up, I kind of think, fair enough. I feel like that's what Brexit Britain deserves. Brexit Britain does not deserve nice cheese from Italy. It doesn't deserve nice vegetables and fruit from Spain. It wanted the old days back. So if Britain now has to eat gruel and spam, I think fair enough. Think about what you've done. <laughs> the only, I suppose the only argument against that is that it's that it would be um, not let's say, the Boris Johnsons of this world who'd be suffering, they'd still have their big lunches, uh, but it would be the poor who spend about the sixth of their income on, on food. They, you know, they're the ones who benefit from the, the current system where the, the price of milk is, based, is barely more than it costs the farmer to, to, to produce it and milk the cow. If that all goes wrong, it's the poorest citizens, not all of whom voted for Brexit, of course. You, you've just food-shamed. <laughs> 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 That'll teach you for that being serious. Yes. I'm going to really it's think like... about what I've said. Yeah. <laughs> I still am happy everybody's going to eat gruel. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. If only you could choose the people who are going to eat yeah. it. Finally, and most amusingly, we've got the possibility that Brexit might actually be illegal. What's going on? Well, it's not often that we get to talk about criminal law and justice weekly, but a barrister, David Walchover, has written a piece for that eminent journal arguing that the government is breaking the law by entering the Brexit talks, and this could even conceivably result in Theresa May and David Davis going to jail for misconduct in public office. Try and sum up a complicated legal argument very quickly. So, remember the Gina Miller case? She said Parliament should decide on Brexit. UK Supreme Court said, yes, there must be an act of Parliament declaring Britain's intent to quit. Right, so what we got in in the end was the European Referendum Notification of Withdrawal Act, that Parliamentary Act passed earlier this year, which gave the Prime Minister permission to go to Brussels and hand in Article 50 notice. Now, this guy in the legal journal is arguing that that's not the Act of Parliament that Gina Miller and the Supreme Court said was necessary. The Article 50 bill presupposed that there had already been a decision by Parliament to withdraw from the EU. And David Davis and his counterpart in the Lords, when they introduced the bill in Parliament, they falsely claimed, according to this barrister, that the decision had already been formally made. So therefore, the whole thing is totally illegal. Misconduct in office is a very serious thing. And somebody, any aggrieved citizen, could supposedly go to the cops and say, arrest them. I think my experience from watching courtroom dramas is 
is not up to the challenge of assessing his argument. <laughs> do, do we have any idea? I mean, it seems improbable that Theresa May and David Davis are going to go to jail. Indeed. He even admits that. Here's what I think. It's, it's a good read if you like legal stuff like this and imagining politicians going to jail and stuff. My, my take is, it, is, and it's also very British as well, tell you, tell you sorry, old chap, you, you forgot to tick box 23A. So I'm afraid your entire application for Brexit is completely cancelled. And by the way, you're under arrest. You know, it's a very British kind of thing. It's a bit like filling in a Home Office immigration form, actually. My view is it's, it sounds to me like the opening argument by a barrister in a court case, not the judge's summing up. Imagine the government coming into the dock and saying, right, we said in our 2015 manifesto we would respect the referendum result. And we won the election, then Cameron, then the Prime Minister, clarified this point with his majority behind him and said, we're going to regard the referendum outcome as final. The referendum happens. And then in David Davis's speech, the one that's now being accused as being the scene of the crime, if you like, when he said uh, the decision is already made, he meant politically. MPs and lords went into the lobbies knowing that by passing this law, giving handing to Theresa May the ability to pass Article 50, they were also saying we agree to the Brexit process. How could they possibly have thought anything else? We rest our case, my love. If there were such a case, that, that's what I imagine would be. It's the same facts, but putting a different spin on them. This sounds like chicanery. Well, why not? <laughs> and, um, chicanery in British politics. Well, I, think, never I think there's a good argument that's happening in America at the moment, which is saying that while Trump's opponents should be keeping an eye on the kind of Russia scandal and all of the kind of technicalities there, what they should actually be concentrating on, what the Democrats should be concentrating on, is their own policies, their proposals to win the arguments in the sort of popular imagination rather than through technicality. Now, who knows where this scandal will end up? But this this sort of reminds me of that in that I don't have much time for these very, very technical arguments, which seem that they would have no sway with the public. Well, it's worse than that, isn't it? I mean, it, imagine what would happen if it succeeded. You know, yeah. imagine if you were to just turn around and go, oh, sorry, Brexit's cancelled because someone didn't, you know, fill in the form right. You know, it, 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 it's just, it's not, it's not valid. It's, it's not adequate. It's, tra- it borders on a more, uh, you know, there's, there's always been this strain in, in Remain, which I've never really been comfortable with. You know, the, the, lots of people do the whole sort of, um, oh, it was just an advisory referendum. You think no one taking part in it thought that this was an advisory yeah. referendum. We can't try to cheat the result. We have to win the fight. Mm. And winning the fight is a much harder task, but it's one that is absolutely doable. But that seems to me the way to go rather than this. I mean, there's about three or four of these legal variants Indeed, on this sort yeah. of idea, and I, I tend to just sort of ignore them. Well, he, if you read right through to the end, this eminent barrister admits that, you know, the police might feel obliged to look at any complaints that anybody brought, but really the chances are very low of, you know, sending ministers to jail. And the point is he's making is that he's I- inviting somebody to bring a case like this, really to make the point that the government is being cavalier about the rule of law in the whole thing. Mm. And is trying to, sh- as it's about, as we're about to talk about with the Great Repeal Bill, is trying to shove things past Parliament very, very quickly and say, don't look, don't look. That's, that's the point he's making. It's a bit mm. of legal fun with the point really being that these things like the Gina Miller case do keep the debate alive in, in a sense. Peter Collins there with the Brexit News Roundup. Well, the big news last week, which just missed our last edition, was the publication of the Great Repeal Bill. This is the bill that's supposedly going to get all EU law onto the UK statute book so we can take back control and repeal bits at will. Ian, this involves Henry VIII, so obviously I'm excited. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so there's... um. 
these powers in the bill, which you'll see in lots of bills. I mean, we, we use them all the time. There's variations, but various, you call them Henry VIII clauses, or you can call them statutory instruments, or it's delegated legislation or secondary legislation. There's, there's an awful lot of words for this kind of thing. And really what they allow you to do, it's really the way that you implement a law. So let's say that you say, well, we're going to set the speed limit at 30 miles an hour. You're going to have a parliamentary debate over that bit. But no one needs to have a parliamentary debate when you want to update the kind of video camera that you use to catch people speeding. You can do that just as a ministerial power. So you put a statutory instrument in there. It says the minister can change kind of speed camera if he wants, whenever he wants to do that. And that's just such a instrument. All of which makes total sense. There is a really good reason that we have these kind of things. No one wants to have those debates about types of speed camera. But of course, whenever you give governments powers like this, they start to misuse it. So, for instance, we had such a instrument about freezing the assets of prescribed terror groups way back, you know, in sort of New Labour's crazed war on terror times. And then, all of a sudden, when the banks crash in Ireland in 2008, you suddenly start seeing the UK government freezing the assets there of UK taxpayers to protect it. And you think, well, that's fine, but that was not why you passed that statutory instrument. You see the same, I mean, they used it, if you remember when they, do you remember a few years back, they banned all sorts of porn, mostly of female domination, you know, face sitting and all of this kind of stuff. They used a statutory instrument for that, which again, you should be using for very, very uncontroversial things. And if you're starting to use it to ban anything at all, you haven't understood what a statutory instrument is. Now, the repeal bill, because it's got to do a lot of weird, tinkering little bits definitely needs to have these in it. No one's questioning that they should be in there. You could easily have a scenario, you know, where let's say like we do all of the negotiations as if we're going to leave your atom. And then at the end, we suddenly go, well, actually, th- this can be done. You can't, you don't have time for a full debate. You have to give a minister the power to just quickly write a bit saying we're going to be in your atom. So that's what goes on in this bill. What you can ask of the government is that there are safeguards about use and that they seem reticent and responsible about the manner in which they're introducing these powers. And I'm afraid that there isn't much evidence of that. On the good side of the ledger, there's a, a limitation for two years after the act has passed that these powers go away. And there is a limitation on what you can use them for. So you can't use them to create a criminal offence or to raise taxation or anything like that. The problem is when you get into the small print of the bill. And in the small print of the bill, these things called schedules, which is the pages after pages of this unspeakably tedious stuff at, at the back end. You really find some extraordinary powers, the powers that ministers can use in urgent situations. Of course, they're the ones that decide when something is urgent. There's a little bit that basically says any power we hand back to Scotland or Wales. Oh, if it's not compatible with the decisions that are being made by ministers in the UK, it doesn't go. So in other words, do what you like, lads, as long as you're doing what we like. And then there's one, there's section nine, I think it is. And that is the widest power I've ever seen a British minister hand himself, where it basically says, you should read it yourself. You can do what you like as long as it's about Brexit. And now that power is limited to the day of Brexit. So there's no two years after. That just ends on the day of it. I've never seen anything like that in British law. And if you imagine this uh, final vote scenario, which it looks tight in the Commons on the final deal, and it's really coming up to the sort of business end of it, everything's chaotic, it looks like it all might fall apart. It's quite easy to imagine a minister using that power to just change on the ground the structure of the British regulatory system so that a vote against the deal would be basically impossible because it would throw us into chaos. They could start creating regulators here, scrapping them here, moving powers over there, all without consulting Parliament at all, really. And that seems to me a clear and present democratic danger. And of course, all of the people talking last year about parliamentary sovereignty and the need to retrieve power from Brussels have been magnificently silent, while parliamentary sovereignty has been basically taken away and sucked into the executive now. They're not making any noise about it. And it's only really Remainers that I see out there pointing out what is going on in this bill. And is there going to be much of a fight over this? Yeah, this well, this, bill. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, Labour say that they're against the bill, but they don't really say 
why or on what basis. I haven't heard anything from them to suggest that they actually plan to do things any differently, really. You could, I mean, the things to do is to say something like, we're going to set up a committee of, let's say, trade unionists and business leaders and human rights lawyers to look at the statutory instruments that you're using and to sign off on them. There's something called a super affirmative statutory instrument where it goes off to a committee of the lords and the commons each time and they can vote it down. That's also a very good idea. But Labour so far aren't putting any of those ideas forward. So I suspect with this, as with all Brexit bills, they're going to hammer away to humiliate the government. But then at the end of it, they're going to let that stuff go through. Gorni, you said you were a Labour person, as am I. And uh, I wonder, are you clear on what their uh, their strategy is here? I mean... <laughs> It's, I can see why they've taken, because it's easy for the Conservatives, because they can just be like, we're pro-Brexit. The majority of Conservative people voted for Brexit, but Labour are in the strange position where some of their constituencies were the highest leave and the highest remain, and they have to represent both of them. And if it was an anti-Westminster elite vote, the way to win those people over isn't by completely ignoring them and dismissing them. So I think it's a tricky thing to get right, and I think a lot of, so of my friends in London who are like, oh, I can't they just go out fully remain but realistically they can't do that because you know Labour is a very broad church so what I hope is you know Keir Starmer is very clever and so this is happening and they're just going to try and make the best for workers and for you know regular people that's what my heart is hoping is happening I don't know if that's reality I, I'm not a constitutional expert, but so I, I assume that Henry VIII powers was something about giving ministers the power to take half a dozen wives. <laughs> I thought it was a special dispensation for Boris, but I'm clearly wrong, clearly wrong about this. I also read somewhere that no statutory instrument has been rejected since 1979. Does that sound mm. plausible? However, the powers, as Ian has amply described, uh, being granted here are so exceptional that I wouldn't be surprised if we did get lots of statutory instruments being rejected. As I understand it, under the bill, the default is uh, the negative procedure. In other words, a minister draws up some regulations and waves them in front of the House of Parliament for two seconds, and then unless somebody objects, the thing goes through. Presumably, we will see on lots and lots of small regulations where somebody in Parliament doesn't actually like the current regulations, the current EU regulations. They will put in a prayer, as it's called, mm. a, a call for it to be objected to and debated, and we might get a few laws actually knocked down, don't you think? But it's completely possible. My, my concern is that MPs are so bad at this most of the time. Usually they don't get such arrangements. So, yeah, it's waived, there's a chance to protest, but they usually don't take it. Even on affirmative ones where they're put on committees, they usually, they sit there, I think it's 26 minutes was the average length of the committee hearings in the last parliament on this stuff. They don't really know what they're looking at. They see it as soon as they walk in. They usually put that, I mean, the whips will tell them, you can do your Christmas cards. So catch up on correspondence with constituents in the committee. They, they don't do their powers of scrutiny on this stuff. Hopefully, the, the amount of attention will change that. But I have to say that like, any plan that rests on the responsibility and the intelligence of Britain's MPs is one that is fraught with danger. <laughs> You've already heard it. We've got a splendid special guest this week. It's Gronya Maguire. She's an acclaimed stand-up comic. Uh, and Ian, as you know, is from gigs for the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. How are you doing, Gronya? Good, excited. A gorgeous day in Brexit Britain. <laughs> is, is Brexit good for comedians? Yes and no. Um, so I'm going up to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and I think like every single comedian is going to have their five-minute take on it. Because the Edinburgh Festival is in August, it was kind of too late for most people to have in their Edinburgh show because most shows are written. Um, yeah, everybody will be have their ten minutes in the Edinburgh Fringe this year about it. Does that make it harder then for you to sort of 
you know, to do something that sort of feels fresh when you know that it's like when everyone's talking, presumably if you're in America right now, mm. it's just like every stand-up comic is like, huh, President Trump, huh? Yeah. What's he like? The news this year has been so crazy. It's given me a lot of sympathy for like stand-up comedians in Gotham City because <laughs> <laughs> it's like you have to come up with a fresh way of saying, oh my God, the world's about to end every single week. <laughs> so it's been quite tricky. And some... Um, we we had a guest a few weeks ago who said that the the, the comic community, or whatever, it's probably not what you call yourselves, the funny people community, um, tends to lean very Remain, and that your kind of uh, your Lee Hursts are very much in the minority. I mean, is, is is that the case? Do you expect to see much kind of celebratory leave humour at Edinburgh? Well, the thing is, it's tricky because there's nothing more boring than somebody ranting about something that everybody already agrees with. And um, if we're all sort of like um, remain and the audience is very much remain on stage talking about how Brexit is a disaster, will get gets quite tedious and very sort of... So it's more... Um, yeah, it's hard to, you don't want to be just preaching to the choir, so it's sort of trickier to come up with a funnier angle on it. You've basically just undermined our entire editorial <laughs> proposition. <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating, and I think people need at least an hour a week of this, of this stuff. Because I, I, so I find it very interesting as an Irish person, the whole Brexit thing, because um, genuinely, when I moved to Britain for, I've lived in London for 10 years. When I moved to Britain first, uh, I come from a very Republican family and it was very much like, oh, English people are very arrogant. They don't know their own history. They're very pompous. And then I moved to London. I love living in London. And I've made so many amazing friends. I always felt welcome. I always felt wanted. And then there was that moment, you know, the, the opening ceremony at the Olympics games and I was like yes this is the Britain that I love living in and I was able to show that to my parents I was like this is what London is really like your idea of the UK is so old-fashioned and, wah, then wah. <laughs> and then Brexit happened and I was like oh my parents were right the whole time so that it made me really really it made me really sad and really angry because as an immigrant I come from a family of immigrants my auntie and uncle moved to uh, New York in the 80s. I know that narrative of how hard it is to be an immigrant in a foreign city, how hard you have to work to fit in and how you want to contribute and you want to feel welcome. And then to feel like the morning after, I remember it was when they triggered Article 50. I just felt so unwanted and so resentful that like my side of the story, like an immigrant side of, was just sort of like dismissed, it felt like. It made me really sad because I felt like the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games that Britain had kind of been diminished slightly. Do you feel sort of different from other EU citizens in terms of the Irish thing? It's, mm. it's talked about in a different category. Mm. There's obviously protections there for sort of freedom of movement between Ireland and the UK mm. that go beyond any of the EU stuff. And you know obviously that all they talk about the hard border and the political focus on it. Does it, it, it it's must be sort of a, like being a sort of like, you know, the, the middle child or something. It's like you're part of the EU sort of citizens, but also at the same time, it's slightly different. What made me really angry was how cavalier everybody was back Northern Ireland, because it just was like this afterthought. I feel like shipping rights in the North Sea was given more thought than <laughs> the peace process in Northern Ireland, the jewel in post-World War II politics crown. People are like, oh, yeah, 
like, what about Gibraltar? And it's like, but Northern <laughs> Ireland, Northern Ireland, guys. No, we've done Northern Ireland. That's, that's done. <laughs> and I, I felt really, really angry. And then the fact that because of Theresa May's great politicking, suddenly people were like aware of the DUP and this real sort of, oh, like ginger, oh, it's a DUP. But it's like, that's Northern Ireland, which is part of your country. And the fact that so many people were just becoming an aware, aware of them. I found very frustrating. As another comic put it, the government's entered into a coalition with the political wing of the Old Testament. And presumably that isn't going down awfully well. North, well, parts of the north of the border, but not in the south of the border, no? No, I just, I am incredibly angry with Theresa May because I just think it's the, the fact that she's risked the peace process, the Good Friday Agreement, just to keep her, her job, basically, I think is genuinely disgraceful. And just like just people's cavalier attitude about it. Does it feel like there's a sort of a reformulation of the, the whole Irish issue on the back of this? I hear lots of you know sort of correspondents start talking about well, actually you know we can start to see the way that Irish reunification could possibly be on some distant horizon all of a sudden, and with Westminster giving up its neutral arbiter or everything's in flux and all of that. Does that feel right, or is that just people getting rather overexcited? A united Ireland. Nobody wants it. I know that's awful, but nobody does. Nobody cares. People just want peace, jobs, and to be able to afford a house. That's all people care about. And it's just when people, it's when emotions get brought into it and ideals, and that's that's when things go wrong. I mean, people just want the storming government to start, you know, get that sorted and then start thinking about, like, big pipe dreams like that. Well, I read a, a remarkable piece a, a few weeks ago, possibly by Melanie Phillips, where she was going that, that, that uh, iRexit, it sounds like a kind of dance hall MC, um, <laughs> iRexit was, I quote, a no-brainer. And... And that obviously that was the right thing to do. Now, you were saying that Ireland is sort of being sort of treated, it's sort of getting special treatment from Britain. Mm. And you were saying it's also kind of getting, being fondly regarded by Europe. Like mm. both sorts of sides want to sort of look after Ireland. Is there any appetite for iRexit? Is it, is it, is it really never, a no-brainer? No way, no way, no way. Never going to happen, never going to happen. <laughs> Sounds we, like it's a brainer after all. We get so much money from the EU. I've lived in London for 10 years. I'm still getting a farmer's grant. We're never leaving. We're never leaving. Should somebody be looking into this? It's because Ireland, I think it's a different uh, mentality. So Britain always had the attitude it was kind of too good for the EU. It was slumming it. It was kind of, ugh, if we have to. Ireland are like, oh my God, we're in the EU. This is so exciting. We're all the glamorous, good-looking Mediterranean countries. And we're not British because we're in the EU. So we are nev- we're never leaving. We, Ireland has a very fond relationship with the EU because it's forward-looking. It's not British. It's well, exciting and it's not British. It's like Britain. That, that attitude, the Melanie Phillips attitude, is basically the sort of Britain has left the party and is standing outside Going, come on, darling, we're leaving. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then, like, really shocked when Ireland's just like, I'm going to stay for a bit longer, <laughs> yeah. actually. I'll, I'll see you, I'll see you later. <laughs> Do you think there's going to be an influx of all, all the many, 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 many Brits who are second and third and fourth and fifth generation from uh, immigrating from Ireland are now going to think we're, we're in the wrong side now. We're going to go back. Do you think there's going to be a, a, a tidal wave of us going back and, and uh, sort of claiming our ancestral rights and stuff? No, because Ireland is still a shithole. That's splendid, but we've, we, we've still got a little while left to offend another major group. <laughs> 
Let's uh, move on from insulting the downtrodden <laughs> and onto the important business of undermining democracy. <laughs> democracy means different things to different people. To Plato, it was a charming form of government, full of variety and disorder, dispensing a sort of equality to equals and unequal alike. To Churchill, it was the worst form of government, except all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. To angry middle-aged men on Twitter with Union Jack avatars, it means the majority of the people make a decision, then everybody else has to shut up forever because they lost and should get over it. Last June, 52% of voters decided Britain should leave the European Union one way or another. But what if, I'm just running this up the flagpole, this was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad decision. (laughs) Can it be reversed without trampling on the fundamental principle of democracy? Labour peer Lord Adonis recently compared the Brexit vote to appeasement and called it the worst mistake this country has made since the 1930s. Brexiteers, who would never in any circumstances be so cavalier as to compare, say, the EU to Nazi Germany, were, said Ian Duncan Smith, astonished and appalled. And if Ian Duncan Smith is astonished and appalled, we all should be. (laughs) But if Britain had held a referendum on appeasement in 1937, voters would have endorsed it, and they would have been wrong. Research by King's College London, Cambridge University and Rand Europe whoever they are, the mysterious, sinister Rand Corp, found that Britons were more worried about trade deals than they were about limiting free movement of labour. Can anything be done to change course without thwarting the will of the people? Yeah, I mean, you go back to the will of the people. But this is the core uh, thing. Yeah, but, but, yeah, and yeah, you, see, you see what I've done there. This is the core thing. This sort of continues almost from our discussion of sort of te- technical, sort of, you know, legal approaches and all of that. Then there's another school of thought, which basically says, well, this can all be fixed up in Westminster. And ultimately, some kind of Westminster shenanigans can take care of this. Or even there's another one that says, well, we can have a referendum, but we need to have it on, on different terms. We need to do it properly, you know, with a super majority of, say, 60 percent or 55 percent. And we should we should base it on the local electoral role, which would, of course, bring in sort of EU citizens to vote in a way they couldn't before. See, I, this is my issue with all of that. I feel this can only be undone in the way it was done. I want no more referendums. They're abysmal. I think the EU citizens should have been included in this referendum because you're making a decision on their life that they don't have any control over. However... I feel like the only legitimate way of undoing it is to do exactly the same thing again. My preferred method for that is a referendum on the final deal. And that is basically because you get to say, this is not us just doing it over and over until we get the right result. This is part of the narrative of democratic control of saying, fine, you you vote to say on principle we want to leave. Now here are the details. Do you still want to leave? That is about going forwards rather than just repeating the same action again and again. And that seems to me the way to go, but it has to to be that. I don't think it could be something stitched up in Westminster or even worse, tinkered with in some bit of, you know, legal analysis. And also we've had, you know, uh, since the referendum, the people have spoken again. Uh, Theresa May specifically went to the people and said, give me a great big major- uh, majority so that I can go mm. ahead and, and you know, deliver a pretty hard Brexit. And they said no. A lot of, and, you know, there are people who say, oh, 85% of the of, of MPs back Brexit. Well, no, the party leadership said uh, Brexit, but an awful lot of MPs, as I say, in almost every edition of this podcast, a majority of Conservative <laughs> MPs are uh, pro-Remain, an awful lot of Labour MPs are pro-Remain, and of course we elect MPs. We don't actually directly elect party leadership. We we elect MPs. So actually, people have spoken. We, they 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 they've shown their lack of certainty now about the idea of Brexit. So I mm. I think. I think that's not, that's we don't have this problem that we have to somehow honour the 52%. Did anyone read John Harris's piece in The Guardian a few days ago, which is sort of in the vein of, of Grunia's uh, controversial let the meat gruel stance? <laughs> and it was called Brexit is clearly a terrible idea, but it has to happen. He argued that Brexit had drained some of the UKIP poison from the bloodstream of British politics. And among other things, any attempt to reverse it will just kind of bring ugly battles over immigration 
uh, roaring back. Uh, you know, also obviously huge outrage about, um, you know, the democracy being thwarted, even if there is would be a second referendum. Now, Brexit must mean Brexit, he says, even though, I quote, that may result in a long spell of relative penury and an atmosphere of recrimination and resentment. By the time everything is resolved, a lot of us will either be very old or dead. Which is, I, I can see where he's coming from, but but he, he hasn't sort of sweetened the pill there. He's pretty much like, just suck it up. Yep, this Britain. terrible thing. It's the anti where Blair is just, or Don is going, this, a terrible decision has been made. Let's try and soften it. John is sort of just going, that's what's going to happen. It's bonkers. I mean, I really like John. I mean, John, he's as good a journalist as we have in this country. He's completely brilliant. But I just find this argument just completely insane. Like, I mean, and, you, and you see it there by saying, oh, by the way, most of us will be dead by the time we, we redo the, <laughs> undo the damage. You just think like, well, no, I'm not accepting that. If I think something's wrong, I'm going to say that it's wrong. And this plays into, you know, even though something can only be changed by having another reference, I still take umbrage at the, 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 the piety of the way that democracy has been described over the last 12 months with the sense of, like, oh, but you can't question the will of the people. No, people are wrong. Really, quite frequently, and you're entitled to say you are wrong. And that and isn't here is why to do anything else is to patronise people. And that isn't, in fact, democracy. Democracy isn't this very, very narrow electro- electocracy where you have fifty point not not one percent deciding and everybody has to swallow it and shut and shut up. Uh, democracy is a much broader concept, which means that you do have the right to continue expressing your opinions. You do have the right to continue campaigning in a democratic way to, for the change of a policy that you think is wrong. We don't have to shut up, and we. Should shouldn't let anybody get away with saying that we somehow have to shut up. We have to accept, well, I don't want to particularly give... given, given the lack of clear signal at the last election. Well, I don't want to give away trade secrets, but uh, I did, in fact, go onto a, a, a wiki quote page about Ooh. democracy uh, while researching for this because I'm a professional. <laughs> and it was very striking. Uh, I knew some of them before, honestly, from books. Um, but it was very striking that about maybe 20% were like, democracy is, is excellent. And 80% were just like very witty lines about it, its sort of many flaws. And it's felt very weird that for the first time in kind of my in my life that, that just people in Britain, well, on the Leave side, are just going, democracy, it's like it's really simple and it always works, be quiet. And it's like, I'm sure that's not true. I think um, something good come out of it, I think Britain needs to be humbled. <laughs> It's like Mr. Rochester and Jane Eyre. Britain just needs to go get blinded in a fire in a house somewhere, sit with a rug across its legs, have a little think, and then about 10 years' time, rejoin the EU, but like be so much nicer to everybody. And there'll be, it'll be a better country. I, I, I suspect we won't be a better country. <laughs> I think we'll be angrier, more right-wing, poorer. But uh, it'll all be sorted out when we're very old or dead. So. <laughs> well, that's reassuring. That's good. That's the end of our show. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our special guest, Gorney Maguire. Where are you performing next? Um, I'm at the Gilded Balloon at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, 6.30 every day. Tickets available. Excellent. We'll put a link on our show page. And thanks as ever to Ian Dunt and Peter Collins for joining me. Remember, you can hear the show and all of our past shows on Audio Boom, Spotify and iTunes. Go to Romaniacs.com where all the links are present and correct. And you can follow us on Twitter at Romaniacscast for Brexit misery three times a day. What could be better? <laughs> as ever, we're going to finish with a reason to be cheerful and it's Peter's turn. Well, before we do, we need a disclosure here. As you know, the BBC is being forced to disclose the salaries of all of its highest paid stars. So I feel I ought to tell you that I get paid a million squillion quid a week to do this podcast. You guys get the same, yes? <laughs> by, 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 your, by your Brussels paymaster. Absolutely, yes. So anyway, uh, on to this uh, reason to be cheerful. It's not much, to be honest, but it's a really just a collection of straws in the wind that I hope mean that some wind is coming. <laughs> uh, there's Hammond in Treasury 
questions in the Commons this week in furious agreement with Chris Leslie of Labour, soft Brexiteer, former front bencher, on the need for a long transition period in which we basically stay in the EU's main institutions, meaning a long transition agreement. <laughs> then you've got Vince Cable and Tony Blair saying, you know, Brexit can and should be stopped. Heseltine even floating the idea that maybe Labour will see the chance to win an election by turning against Brexit, and that will stop it. That's a pretty surprising thing, although, of course, he's a long way out of office, so he can say stuff like that. They're nothing on their own, these things. But together, I hope they mean we're seeing a real movement in what's called the Overton window, which is this conception of the range of political opinions that it's acceptable for a public figure to put forward. The Overton window is moving, I hope, towards being able to say we don't have to do this. That's a nice note to end on. (laughs) We're going to continue to exploit the linguistic skills of our guests from the EU. Gronia, could you say farewell in Gaelic? Slán lath gok dinner. Really? <laughs> it just sounds so much like slow nat cock dinner. <laughs> Romaniacs is presented by Dorian Linsky, Ian Dunt and Peter Collins. It's produced by Matt Hall and Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Podmasters production.